Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. So we have a candidate for president of the United States who is running on a basic income platform. Um, and you, you may or may not have heard of him. His name's Andrew Yang. And he has a lot of bold ideas, basic income probably being the, the one he's devoting the most attention to through what he calls a freedom dividend. And Jim got the opportunity to sit down with Andrew Yang and, and discuss his proposals and why he's, he's making them and why he's running for president. So this interview was recorded at a live event, so you'll, you'll hear some crowd noise and some atmospheric noise. And here is Jim Pugh and Andrew Yang on the Basic Income Podcast. So, Andrew, as we saw in the video, you're running for president in the 2020 election as a Democrat. Now, your background is in law and business, and for the past seven years, you've been running Venture for America, which is training and supporting entrepreneurs. What made you decide to run for president? So before Venture for America, I ran a company called Manhattan Prep that helped prepare college graduates to go to business school. Uh, And so we were acquired by the Washington Post in 2009. And this problem that I couldn't escape was that it seemed like we had so many smart, talented people who are all becoming bankers, consultants, and lawyers, and, and tech people in New York and SF, and not enough were heading to other parts of the country to build businesses and, and create new jobs. So this was 2011, uh, and I felt like I, I'd frankly been part of that since I, I was training people to go to business school. And I, like I saw, I personally taught the analyst classes at McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and, and I saw all of these smart people who really were somewhat lost in their careers and were taking the GMAT to go to business school to hit the reset button and get 100K in debt and just do do it all over again. And so I thought there really needs to be a way to improve on this. And so what I thought was, well, if I don't love what smart college graduates are doing now, what should they be doing in my ideal world? And so uh, I thought, well, in my ideal world, they would be going to start businesses and create new jobs in Detroit Cleveland, New Orleans, Baltimore, and there are a bunch of Venture of America fellows uh, out there. Love you guys, uh, and they've li- they lived it. They've lived it. Zach, Bryant, Adam, they have stories to tell. They believe the same thing I believe, which is that having talented, enterprising people go build companies in these environments would be a massive improvement over the status quo. So I, I donated 120,000 of my own to start Venture of America in uh, 2011. I guilt tripped some friends actually just saying, don't you love America? And they were like, if I say yes, what does that mean? And I'm like, at least $10,000. So, you know, I got, you know, like eight or 10 friends to say yes to that. Uh, and then our, our, our budget's grown over the years, where this year our budget's around $6 million, thousands of applicants for hundreds of spots, dozens of alums have started companies around the country that have raised tens of millions of dollars. And, and as a whole, the, uh, fellow, the fellows over the years have helped create uh, about 2,500 plus jobs or so. Um, so I grew up in upstate New York, and I had never been to Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, any of these places before starting Venture of America. And so I went to these places, and I was struck by how depressed most of them seemed. Uh, they, they were much more depressed than I would realized, and that the startups that we were working with, even if they were successful, they were not going to create anywhere near the number of jobs that would be required to replace what has been lost. They're going to employ college graduates, like many of you, um, engineers. They're not going to employ thousands of high school grads. Uh, And there's also been a real talent flight from many of these cities. How many of you are actually from, like, uh, 
like Midwest or like another part of the country. I mean, here in SF, like a bunch of you, because what happens is really strong people from other parts of the country move to SF or New York uh, to uh, to test themselves, to try and grow, to to accomplish uh, things professionally. So. All of this was hitting me over the years, and then Donald Trump became president, and I was still shocked. I was like, what the hell just happened? Uh, and to me, the proximate reason that Donald Trump is our president today is that we automated away four million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, which are essentially his margin of victory. Now, I have dozens of friends here in Silicon Valley, as you do, uh, and they all know that we are automating away. So the top five job categories in the United States are Actually, I'll, I'll shout out, like, what are the top five jobs in the U.S.? Truck driver, yeah. So truck driving as a category is the number one job in 29 states, but as a labor category, it's number four. So what are the other of the top five? Retail is number two. One out of 10 American workers is in retail. Average age 39, majority women. Uh, how many of you worked retail uh, at some point in your lives? Like most of us, right? But we worked retail as a job on the way to this other thing when we were in school. For most retail workers, it's just their job. It's just uh, you know the way they uh, they live. Um, so retail's number two. What else makes the top five? Food service and food prep, number three. Uh, so nursing, there actually aren't enough nurses to make, make the top five. Uh, there should be, ideally. Uh, number one is administrative and clerical work, including call center workers. And number five is manufacturing still. So what proportion of American workers fall into one of these five categories? Administrative and clerical, including call centers, retail, food service and food prep, truck driving, and manufacturing. It's about half, it's like 49%. So we all know what's gonna to happen to these categories. I mean, 30% of malls are gonna close in the next four years. Uh, and so I saw all of this happening, and then I would go to senior politicians because I was cool enough to hang out with senior politicians and was like, hey guys, this is what is happening, like, what's the plan? And they literally said to my face, we cannot talk about that. Uh, so, so many politicians actually recognize that this is happening, but they are afraid to both address it and also present realistic solutions because realistic solutions seem uh, too extreme, possibly socialist, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so I was horrified by this. I was like, no way that, like, uh, that our, our politicians are actually uh, just trying to like, ignore this elephant in the room even as it ravages our, our society and gives us this like emblem of our civilization's decline as our president. Uh, and, and so that's all, what, this is a very long-winded answer of how I decided to run for president, where I, I saw what was happening and then I sat with uh, people and said, look guys, if there's really no plan to make this the central issue before the truckers riot in 2024, or whatever the year is, um, then I will become the plan and so I stepped down as CEO of Venture of America last year and then have uh, uh, been putting the campaign together ever since. There have been very few Asian Americans who have run for president in the past, and no Asian American has run for president as a Democrat in more than 40 years. Was that something that factored into your decision to run, and has it affected your candidacy? So I'm running primarily because I'm genuinely afraid of what is happening to our country and what's going to happen if it's left unchecked. But there is certainly a part of me that is proud to be an Asian American who's uh, stepping onto the national political stage and uh, rising to the, the challenge because uh, Asian Americans are Americans, we're patriots, uh, we can represent what we believe in uh, and there's no reason to shy away from that. 
Now, I know a lot of people here are already familiar with basic income, but for the one or two folks who might not know too much about it, can you tell us what your Freedom Dividend proposal is? Yes. So the Freedom Dividend is rebranded universal basic income because it tests better with conservatives. Uh, conservatives, <laughs> conservatives didn't like the Opportunity Dividend or the Prosperity Dividend, but stick the word freedom on there and all of a sudden those numbers go straight up. And liberals still like it. You know, it's like liberals, I guess, like a lot of things. Um, so, uh, so the Freedom Dividend is $1,000 a month per American adult. Uh, and the way I, I propose to pay for it. So the big challenge we're facing right now is that more and more work is going to be done by software, robots, AI, and income tax is really terrible at capturing that uh, because large technology companies don't pay a heck of a lot in tax. Small technology companies are often not very profitable. So you need a value-added tax because it will capture those gains where if you have a robot trucking company or an AI company, then the, the VAT, it's like inescapable and you're nodding. You look like you might be from another country. Because like every other industrialized country except for us has a VAT, um, so, you're, so you're nodding. Um, so my, my plan is to implement a VAT at half the European level. The average European level is 20%. Um, at half the European level, it, it raises because our economy is so vast. We are the richest, most advanced society in the history of the world. And a 10% VAT will raise enough to fund the majority of a freedom dividend slash universal basic income of $1,000 per adult. Now, as you said, the impetus for all of this is coming automation. And just to be clear, this is not speculative at all anymore. We're, we're in the third or fourth inning, and if you look at the social indicators, they are staggering and horrifying. Where our life expectancy has declined for the last two years, middle-aged suicide rates have spiked, uh, disability rates are up to 20% in some counties, 40% of children are born uh, to unmarried mothers because the marriage rate among working class Adults has collapsed in part because working class men no longer have stable economic opportunities. And our labor force participation rate is at 62.9%, which is a multi-decade low and is comparable to El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. Not to knock anyone who's from those countries, just you don't really think of very high labor force participation rates. Um, also the Ukraine is another country in, in that range. So none of this is speculative anymore. Uh, it's all real, we're in the middle of it, and we're dealing with it by ignoring it. Uh, McKinsey came out with a report saying 30% of jobs subject to automation by 2030. Bain, different graphs, essentially same result, 20 to 25% by 2030. President of MIT comes out and says the responsibility of MIT is to try and help society manage through this transition. In, a, in another era with a more intelligent government, all of this would be like a rallying cry. It was like, oh my gosh, this is real. We have to like get in front of it. Um, but our government is this flopping, out-of-date bureaucracy that's just decades and decades behind. So the, the, the reason why I stepped in here is because one of the frustrations I have about this debate is people think of it as like, oh, when the robots come. Like, robots don't look like robots like walking into this room and being like, hey, I'm here to do your job. Uh, you know, it, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's AI software that replaces, uh, you know, large processing centers. It's self-driving self vehicles. Uh, like, that's... That's the technology we're talking about. And even the automation of the, the manufacturing labor base over the last number of years, which has really decimated many communities. Fair point. And if we assume that this is going to continue and the jobs you've been talking about that seem highly automatable do get automated, we're looking just at a decimation of the workforce that exists today. In that scenario, giving people $1,000 a month doesn't really feel like it's going to fully solve the problem. It, it feels insufficient. 
So I'm curious, do you have a fuller vision of where we're going to? What is the future that can inspire people and, and not feel like a dystopia? Yes. So $1,000 a month is uh, not enough to really prosper. And it's also not enough to change labor market behavior that much. Where if you're a waitress making $18,000 and you get $1,000 a month, you're not necessarily going to quit your job the next day <laughs> unless you know something uh, inappropriate is happening in the job, then you should quit. Uh, and so $1,000 a month is a very specific amount. Uh, the poverty level in the US is 11770 a year. So 1000 a month essentially takes you to the poverty line. Now, the fundamental benefits of work are non-monetary. Uh, and it's one of the things that we, we need to evolve towards. There is a world where the truck drivers would be celebrating their liberation uh, from the trucks because sitting in a truck 11 hours a day, like four days a week, uh, you know, hundreds of miles away from your family, is really bad for your health. <laughs> like 80% of truck drivers have uh, a marker for chronic disease like diabetes, or obesity, high blood pressure, et cetera, as a result. Uh, but because we're trapped in this subsistence model of employment, then they're, they're going to come out and be very angry and upset. And, and it, how many of you read the New York Times uh, article about, about my candidacy? So one of the themes was that Andrew Yang seems very freaked out about truck drivers. Uh, which, which I, I sort of am. Uh, you know, there are three and a half million of them, 94% male, average age 49, uh, average education high school. 10% of them own their own trucks because the trucking company said, be your own boss, buy the truck. And so when those trucks become less competitive, it's going to be their life savings on the line. About 100,000 of them are ex-military. So yeah, like if you look at that, that's like an obvious recipe for disaster. Now, only 13% of truckers are unionized today. In another era, they might have some organization standing up for them, but 87% are non-union. So the challenge really is replacing work in, in fundamental ways. And I agree that $1,000 a month does not do that. It is a major value add. Uh, it's going to help the transition. It's going to help people potentially uh, figure things out, move for another opportunity, um, maybe at the margins go back to school, maybe even start new businesses. And the Roosevelt Institute did a study that showed that a universal basic income at this level would create 4.6 million jobs and grow the economy by 13% in perpetuity, which makes sense because most Americans, 57% of Americans today can't afford a $500 bill, uh, where 57% of Americans essentially are operating in a perpetual uh, mindset of scarcity, where they're just like trying to stay one step ahead of the, the bills. That's one reason why our Politics have become so dysfunctional, right? where if you're in a mindset of scarcity, then your ability to be really positive and optimistic and generous and rational sort of goes down, and then your you know, propensity to blame immigrants and be racist and misogynist goes up. So the replacement of work uh, is not $1,000 a month. My plan in my book that comes out on Tuesday, The War on Normal People, I propose creating a new digital social currency that maps to pro-social behaviors and then you say to someone, look, like you have $1,000 a month, and we, we build a new parallel economy on top of the monetary economy oriented toward things that we know we must do, but right now the market value is at zero or close to zero. So that list of things might go environmental sustainability, renewable energy, installing solar panels, taking care of the elderly, nurturing children, arts and creativity, journalism. Things that at some point we valued as a society, but now like the value on those things is heading to zero. 
And so even if your market skills are quite low, let's say you're a 50 year old displaced truck driver, you go home and then someone's like, hey, if you volunteer uh, at the Little League, if you go to the town center, if you do any of these things, you help a neighbor, then you'll get this credit system and it'll give you structure and purpose and fulfillment throughout your day. Uh, and we need both of those things. We need people to be doing these things uh, and we need to utilize people's energies and, and, and minds and hearts. The thing that I find frustrating is when people think that that will magically happen without some massive shift, because right now, again, the market does not value these things highly at all. The average home healthcare worker right now makes $24,000 a year, and the turnover is 60% a year because it's a brutally difficult job. It's emotionally isolating and very injury prone. So thinking that people are going to just magically be like, oh, I'm not a truck driver anymore, I'm gonna go bathe grandma instead, like, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, like it, it's only possible if we invest real resources in trying to realign the economy around human values. And so we need to abandon GDP, which we invented less than 100 years ago during the Great Depression anyway, uh, as a crude proxy for things. GDP and profitability in the stock market will have less and less relationship with average well-being here in the US. So we need to adopt new measuring sticks. Uh, so I propose a new stage of capitalism, which I call human-centered capitalism or human capitalism. We need to organize the economy around these activities and then that will help create the work that people need and want. There's a lot here that you're proposing, some far more radical change than you typically hear from someone running for president. So that begs the question, even if folks are totally on board with what you say, how do we go from where we are today to this new system? And in fact, at the beginning of your book, you quote Otto von Bismarck saying, if a revolution there is to be, let us undertake it rather than undergo it. So what does it mean to undertake this revolution? And how do we do it in a way that minimizes the amount of people who are hurt or left behind in the process? Well, I truly believe that universal basic income is the, is the transformer. Uh, it benefits 90% of Americans immediately and would transform our politics by making people more mobile uh, and lift them out of the mindset of scarcity they're in so that they're able to be more optimistic and positive, raise their children effectively. Uh, and the studies, as most of you know, the studies around the impact on families, universal basic income to me uh, helps people with the least the most. In other words, people who make less money, have less savings, have fewer opportunities. So it's intrinsically pro-woman and pro-underrepresented minority um, by the numbers. But if you can imagine, so uh, let me say, I do not, I've worked enough in government to know its limitations. And its limitations are very, 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 very significant. <laughs> like its limitations encompass most things, uh, in my opinion. Um, but my friend Andy Stern, who uh, now advises the campaign, he's the largest labor union leader uh, of his generation. Uh, he's now a, a friend of Jim's and mine. He's like, he's one of the people that put me on to universal basic income. Um, he said to me something that is in my book and really stuck with me because it's so true and powerful, which is that the government is terrible at many things, but it is excellent at sending large numbers of checks to large numbers of people promptly and reliably because it does that right now for millions of Americans. And like, you can imagine like, people freaking out if their social security check is like, you know, like a day late, like that does, does, does not happen. So if we can vote universal basic income in, then it will transform politics and then everything becomes possible. 
Just to probe on this a bit more, obviously passing basic income with the way the government works today seems completely impossible. Uh, all right, you know, I, I'm so optimistic about it. Like even now, 48% of Americans are, are for it, including a majority of Democrats. Uh, and if you imagine a blue wave and, and I'm the president in 2021, and then we have majority in Congress and we say, let's pass basic income, let's phase it in over four years. And then there are some Republicans who are like, oh, it's a terrible idea, like the Asian man wants to wreck the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that, then I, my plan is just go to every district with someone who's not for the plan and say, your Congress, man or woman, is standing between you and everyone in your family getting $1,000 a month. Like, wanna show him or her how we feel about that? <laughs> They're just like, like, sort of stand there until like you, you know, I mean, can you imagine that? Because there's so much suffering and so much economic insecurity that if Americans, like this should be a no-brainer as soon as Americans can get their arms around the fact that this is not money for someone else, this is money for all Americans, uh, and it will be transformative. So I'm very optimistic about uh, the potential to pass universal basic income quite quickly. And the truth is, in my opinion, we don't have that much more time. So I want to touch on an issue which is very much in the news and people's headspace right now, which is immigration. And that's obviously a big issue across the country, but particularly here in California. Estimates today are that we have 11 million undocumented people living in the U.S., with over 2 million of them here in the state. The federal government has been waging a full-on assault against undocumented immigrants, and California has set itself up as a sort of counter to that, passing sanctuary state policy, actually extending benefits that traditionally were for citizens only to undocumented folks here. With the amount of reforms you're talking about, now that's obviously going to have a drastic impact across everyone in society, but this is a good number of people who are here already. So how do you see that applying or interacting with this community? It's probably not shocking to most people here that I'm quite pro-immigrant. Uh, my, my parents immigrated here from Taiwan. Uh, my father generated 69 patents over his career, uh, most of them for GE and IBM, so he contributed uh, a great deal. Uh, and I think that's what most immigrants do. Like, where if you look at the rates of business formation, much, much higher among um, immigrants and second-generation Americans. Um, so there are 11 million un undocumented immigrants, and it would be, in my opinion, completely unfeasible to include them in universal basic income uh, from day one. So I would be for a uh, path to citizenship, and then after they become citizens, then they would be uh, eligible to receive a, a basic income. And, but that waiting period would need to be significant, in part to, uh, I think that would be actually something that might win over some of the more nativist uh, types among the American populace, where they'd be like, oh, I'm gonna get this basic income, I'm a real American and whatnot. But don't worry, we're gonna make everyone else real American as soon as we can. <laughs> I'm also very much for trying to be more uh, rational and deliberate about our immigration policy, which is decades behind. And, and one of the things I would do would be to try to say, like, America welcomes immigrants globally. Uh, you know, this used to be the place you would come to build a better life and career. And with me as president, uh, I will make that happen again. And I think I could sell that very well. At Universal Income Project, most of our work over the past year has been exploring universal income policy in California. We've been talking to communities and organizations across the state and getting a chance to experience what different folks' reactions are to the idea, those who are doing active policy work today. 
Something that's come up repeatedly amongst progressive groups is a concern. I think it basically boils down to a question of power. There's a view that the power dynamic that exists today, as long as that is maintained, as long as there's a relatively small elite group of the very wealthy and corporations that really have control over our government and economy, that any attempt at systemic change is only going to be treating symptoms rather than the root causes. And a lot of people push back on the idea that if you give people a check every month, that's going to fundamentally change things. So I'm curious about two things. One, do you agree with that assessment that a power shift needs to happen to do serious reform? And if so, do you feel like the suite of policies you're proposing would accomplish that? So I I think that the freedom dividend would be extraordinarily pro-business. And if you look at the businesses of major corporations, AT&T, Walmart, Google, everyone would benefit if Americans had more money to spend. And a lot of that money would just end up flowing back into these companies. Uh, If we live in a true democracy, there's absolutely no reason we can't make universal basic income a reality. So I I don't believe that there is anything systemic keeping it from happening, particularly because it's a very pro-business, pro-growth policy. In terms of whether it would change things, I genuinely do think it would improve the balance because right now there are so many Americans that are not meaningfully included in whole activities in American life. And I think $1,000 a month would be immensely helpful to most individuals and most families in achieving inclusivity. One of the things that I believe is that, uh, is that economic justice drives social justice, where like if, if uh, to me it's more important how someone is living and feeding their family and providing for needs and not having, uh, you know, having their, their lives crushed by like material needs all the time. Uh, like that, that to me is the main driver of human well-being and, and it drives other things. That was Jim Pugh and Andrew Yang on the Basic Income Podcast. I thought it was interesting how he's kind of reimagining our our social safety net and kind of our whole government around the idea of a world of massive technological unemployment. We've talked a lot about how basic income is really just a start, is not the whole solution. Um, if we're thinking about a world with massive technological unemployment due to automation, and I was pretty interested in how Andrew um, takes it the step further with the, the social impact credits that he talks about. Yeah, he's definitely thought a lot about this. And in his book, The War on Normal People, he, he lays out a lot of his thinking and, and what got him to these different ideas. But to your point, I, I think that is, it's interesting that I think when I advocate for basic income now, I usually... I might not even bring up automation because I say basic income is way of addressing the issues we face today. He goes beyond that and saying, yeah, we're heading towards massive automation and here's basic income plus these other systems that will actually create society that we want, which I think it's, I mean, it's bold. It's, it's going that step further. It's not just one policy you're talking about really radical reform and but as far as provoking bigger thinking and, and broadening the debate on this, that seems like it could be really impactful. Yeah, and I haven't thought through all these ideas enough to really know how I think about them, but I, I do like that he's going there just because there's a lot of talk about our existing social programs and which ones we'd keep, which ones we'd get rid of. And 
if you think about it, it is kind of a rigid way of looking at things. That it's basic income plus those, or basic income without those. But we don't really talk about what else we might want to introduce. And because basic income by itself does feel kind of flat and empty to a lot of people, so it's just interesting to have a conversation in a different direction. I also liked his his discussion of a different metric other than GDP because GDP, while you know it's it's a good blunt force instrument, it also has issues like if you get hit by a car that raises the GDP, and so it's not always um, a, a measurement of positive economic activity. Yeah, I think there's. We could probably do an entire episode on issues around GDP, but certainly it's it's not adequately capturing the way the value that's being created through a lot of the systems that exist today. And so, if if we could figure out a, a new metric and get people to start using that, that actually was encompassing the the change and positive outcomes that we want to see, that that would certainly be a big step in the right direction. The other thing that really struck me from this conversation is really the theory of of how we get the basic income. And Andrew's view is this will happen through the presidency. That if he can be elected, he will work with this blue wave and and be able to pass this policy. I think that's in pretty sharp contrast to the view I've brought to the space, which is. This needs to happen at state and local levels, and to build a strong popular support base, and that only then, really, DC would be the last place where we would expect change to really happen. So it's interesting to look at it from those different lenses. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to take your side on this one, but it, it is interesting to think about how I think people are maybe willing to go go bigger in Boulder. At the federal level, as opposed to the local level, you know, if you're talking about a city, there first of all, there's just not the budget generally for a basic income. But also, people,、um, you know, might just kind of prefer to keep things as they are when it's closer to home. Whereas if we're talking、uh, the entire country, there is that appeal of kind of starting fresh.、Uh, I don't know if he's right about that, but I'm glad we have people who are pursuing both avenues. Yeah, I think having a Debates on all these different fronts. The more the more we can have it, the the more we can move this along, and so it'll it'll be exciting to see where where things go here. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer Eric Davidson.、Uh, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or the service of your choice, and please tell your friends. We're always looking to reach new people. We'll see you next week.